I'm Chad Main, the founder of Legal Services Company Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology and innovation in the legal industry. Today's episode, I have a conversation with Mike Suchman. He and I talk about the state of investment in legal technology in 2022. My guest today, Mike Sushlin, has been in legal tech before it was really even a thing. Literally. Starting in the 1990s, Mike began his career with Wolters Cooler and ultimately ended up with Thomson Reuters, where he climbed the corporate ladder. At Thomson, he started as the head of legal strategy for the legal business, then moved to small law business, ended up running the corporate legal unit, then he went over and ran the legal education section, which included Barbary at the time. And all this culminated in Mike running the whole legal show for Thomson when he became the president of legal business. In that role, Mike was responsible for 10,000 employees and over $3 billion in revenue. In 2014, Mike left Thompson and ultimately ended up knee-deep in the growing legal tech world, where he is and was a board member for several legal tech companies like Latera and iPro. And now he spends most of his time investing in legal tech companies with VC funds, Bridge Investments, and the aptly named Legal Tech Fund. On today's show, Mike and I talk about how he got into legal tech investing, what investors look for in legal tech companies, the state of investing in legal technology in 2022, and whether there really is such a thing as a legal tech unicorn. I had um, just assumed that I would go on and be a CEO of another company, but I became increasingly engaged in talking to private equity firms around uh, doing deals in the space. And like any good networker would do, I was giving a lot of my time away for free. And uh, they kept asking for more and more of it. So ultimately, I kind of gingerly you know, put my toe in the water and said, well, I'm happy to advise you, but will you pay me? And uh, they said, absolutely, we'll pay you. So uh, that kind of launched what uh, was the genesis of Joplin Consulting. Which you still have. Which I still have. And uh, so Joplin um, started out life doing M&A deals for private equity. And part of the value proposition with the private equity firms that I worked with was that if we find a deal, it's successful, and you like me and I'd like you, I'd love to be on the board of the entity that we acquire. So that led to several board positions over the years of companies that uh, I work with private equity on. Now, these companies, I know most have been legal tech, but was it solely legal tech companies that you worked with? Solely legal tech. And then parallel to that, I had joined a venture capital firm as a limited partner and uh, I just did it on a lark. It was a small investment, but I started attending their meetings and learning about venture capital. And then along the way, I had um, some former colleagues from Thomson Reuters that were interested in building a business, so I offered to invest in them. And as I learned the venture capital ropes, I became a more active angel investor. And uh, ultimately, I uh, set on a path with a couple of other partners to uh, put together a venture capital fund. And we ultimately didn't succeed in raising the amount that we wanted to raise uh, to support three partners focused on legal tech. But as we were kind of parting ways, I had uh, sat on the board of a legal tech company called Q Discovery. They were owned by a combination private equity venture capital firm, and they said, Come on to our venture capital fund as a partner and... Uh, this is Bridge, right? Bridge, right. Yep. Come on as a partner and you can help us source deals and uh, you know participate in the process. So I did that. 
and uh, have had a ball having kind of an official capacity and platform to talk to entrepreneurs, learn more about what they're doing and uh, follow trends in legal tech. And it's a nice synergy to be participating both on the venture capital side and the private equity side because many of these VC opportunities that are invested in early ultimately become private equity targets. So they become fuel for the private equity fold-in process in the larger entities. And you're still with Bridge, but you also recently joined forces with the Legal Tech Fund. How'd that come about? I did. So this may be groundbreaking in terms of me being a partner in two different venture capital funds. And But it, it makes sense when you peel it apart because the Legal Tech Fund is a much larger fund than Bridge and uh, has the capability to lead deals at the Series A level. And Bridge is much more of a follower fund. So the way that we've kind of decided to work together is that in cases where uh, the Legal Tech Fund leads, Bridge will be given the opportunity, if interested, to follow. And uh, the resources of the two funds in terms of diligence and um, overall knowledge of the legal space can be combined. And it's better for entrepreneurs to essentially have two knowledgeable funds invested that have diversified experience than to just have one. So we think it's going to work. And Legal Tech Fund obviously is focused on Legal Tech, but Bridge is not only focused on Legal Tech. So Bridge is focused on um, tech-enabled consumer as well as legal tech. And so there is a divided focus there. Those are the two legacy areas that they've had success in. And I think that was another reason that bringing the focus of the legal tech fund is probably going to help bridge as it deploys capital in the legal space, but is also focused on other areas. And you're still on a couple boards, right? iPro and I saw SharePoint. Yep, iPro and SharePoint. iPro, e-discovery technology software competes with you know, some of the name players like Disco and Relativity. And then uh, SurePoint is a workflow in the medium law space. You know, sits kind of between Clio at one end and um, Elite Natterant at the other end. So uh, kind of that medium law firm space. And we've had great success in uh, building a book of business that the other folks haven't been able to penetrate. You've been involved in investment and building legal tech businesses basically since it was became a thing like it, from the very beginning. So you've seen how things have changed. What's changed most? In, in 2021, what is different than it was in, say, 2010 or even 2015? Yeah, I mean, what a big question because I think if you look back over time on the demand side, lawyers in 2010 really resisted the adoption of technology. And that's the simplest way to put it. And, you know, attorneys are not trained as technologists. There's not a technology track or there wasn't then in law school. There was not a positive track record on the role of technology and driving success within a law firm. There was investment in on-prem software to run applications, but the SaaS movement hadn't penetrated um, the legal industry to the same degree. There was still pushback in legal on SaaS because they were worried about security, which... Exactly right. I could talk about that one for hours, but we won't touch that one. one. And, you know, it's an eat-what-you-kill environment. So particularly in uh, smaller firms, the willingness to invest in technology 
really wasn't a proven model when uh, those dollars were coming directly out of the dinner table and the lawyer's uh, own uh, income streams. So I think all of that success was breeding a certain degree of complacence in law firms that the existing model was working. And maybe there was some acknowledgement that the legal industry was behind the rest of the world, but uh, there was not a significant spur for innovation that was occurring as a sea change moment, perhaps like it was where you have, you know, Amazon Web Services and the like uh, impacting the rest of the world. But you do have the advent of cloud-based computing, which removed cost and knowledge barriers. And I think the other force that happened is that on the supply side, the rise of legal tech investment. I'm a senior advisor to Warburg Pincus, which is a multi-billion dollar private equity fund with a team dedicated to the legal space. And even when I left Thompson in uh, 2014, I sat down with the Warburg uh, Pincus folks and asked them about their willingness to invest in the legal space. And they said, we're not that interested in it because it's not large enough. And uh, we really want to see, you know, we want to dedicate a team and uh, outside advisors into a space that's going to actually shift the bottom line for the fund as a whole, which was a multi-billion dollar fund. And now, you know, a short six, seven years later, that has definitely happened. The amount of investment has skyrocketed. And we're at a point in time today where we have multiple unicorns um, that have emerged that would have been unthinkable even five, six years ago. Unicorns. Do you really think these are billion dollar companies? (laughs) You're putting me on the uh, spot there, Chad. So I'll give you an answer with data. If you look at what's happening in the public markets, public enterprises, and a lot of the IPOs are trading at multiples that are far higher than what companies are trading at in private transactions. And, and in fact, that's what has bred the emergence of SPACs is that it's simply possible to get a much higher valuation on the public market. So you do have Disco trading publicly. You have you know several other recent nascent businesses that have gone public. And I think there is a question around the sophistication of the public market investor around their understanding of the legal market and uh, trying to benchmark those businesses to perhaps SaaS software businesses in other markets and not having you know, full appreciation for the comparables. So I don't know. I think that the strategy for the market to optimize the opportunity is that the best exit right now is an IPO. If you have the scale and uh, the where you have 18 months of audited financials and the wherewithal, or if you don't have the 18 months, spack it out and make it happen. The market for legal is never going to be as big, obviously, as a consumer-facing product or even, even other business tech, yeah. right? So by default, investing in legal is going to be on a smaller scale in general. Yeah, but you can probably say that a lot about a lot of B2B versus B2C enterprises. So uh, B2C, naturally, you have huge consumer markets that um, in many cases have unicorn potential, maybe higher risk because there's more competition for the consumer's dollars and probably different success drivers. But at the end of the day, the legal market is now um, large enough that multiple multi-billion dollar private equity firms are interested. You have uh, Warburg that's participating, HG that just recapped Latera. Insight has had several successful exits. K1 has participated and done quite well. 
So you now have the attention of players who participate across all markets focused on legal because they see the opportunity there. So sure, it probably doesn't have the vast potential that a consumer market does. But I think that 10 years ago, people outside in observers would have said about the legal market, well, on the information side, you have an oligopoly of Kluwer and Thompson and Reed Elsevier. And then on the software side, you really have the e-discovery players. And that's kind of it. And now you have a situation where you've got contract management and you have litigation and transaction workflow. You have multiple blossoming areas of investment as law firms and corporate legal departments are in a race to automate and to manage process and workflows for quality and efficiency. And even within legal, there are some products that have broader appeal. You know, to, to legal, it's like Clio comes to mind versus what we would call about e-discovery. There's multiple uses for e-discovery software, but in general, you need to be a litigator and have that type of litigation that, that requires it. So even within legal, there's varying degrees of, of the scope of a product, right? I think that's absolutely true. Even if you look like at e-discovery, people think of e-discovery as you know mining a database for information. But as you think about what e-discovery is, as you moved earlier and earlier in the value chain, a lot of e-discovery now is what are the policies and procedures that a corporation needs to have in place for maintaining its data set and for the ability to retrieve that data set. And that turns into what are our compliance rules and regulations? And that turns into what compliance software do we have? And so you find that legal tech, I think the definition is expanding dramatically. And uh, legal tech can now mean compliance. It can mean financial management. Blockchain is becoming an important component of legal tech as we incorporate smart contracts into legal workflow. A lot of the workflow players are now incorporating payments into their legal tech value proposition, which would have been unheard of even two, three years ago. And all of those um, opportunities are creating enormous value creation sets of new uh, fields to plow that simply weren't available before. When we come back, Mike tells us what new legal tech offerings excites him and how the best lawyers of the future will be tech-savvy problem preventers rather than backward-looking problem solvers. We need to do more with less. That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there too. Our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. We'll get back to my conversation with Mike Sushlin in just a second. But before I do, 
Want to let you know if you want to learn more about Mike or any of our guests for that matter and find out more about the stuff we talk about on the podcast, there's a dedicated episode page at tlpodcast.com. Also, if you want to subscribe, you can catch us anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google, all the rest of them. And while you're there, if you leave us a good review, we'd really appreciate that. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Mike Sushland about investing in legal technology. The one area that is the most exciting right now is contract management. You have players ranging from you know tiny startups all the way to uh, you know players that have a hundred million dollars of revenue. You have different ways that they're playing the phenomenon. Um, there are pre-signature uh, players. There are post-signature players. There are contract analytics players. There are players who are trying to bring all of these things together in integrated solutions. And I think contract management is kind of in the same stage that e-discovery may have been five or 10 years ago. Tons of players, lots of consolidation opportunity. Probably a few big winners will emerge at the end of the day that will be profitable and will become, you know, Disco's already a unicorn traded on the public markets. And that's only one of five or six major competitors in the space. What's flying under the radar? What's bubbling up? What have you seen lately? I think that the trend we'll see is that the former dominance of large players who owned most of the pieces of the market is going to fade over time. So if you go back to the fact that Thomson Reuters, who during my term, we had a philosophy that we were focused not on spending a ton of money innovating outside our core space of information, but carefully monitoring the market. And then any startup that was successful, we'd simply buy them. Over my 12, 14-year career at Thomson Reuters, I probably ended up buying 50 companies that really complemented the core information business with a lot of software applications. But at some point in time, that um, engine becomes so large and the company, all these companies become focused on uh, sure things. So they begin to buy back their own um, uh, stock as dividends are being paid out. So the return on investment based on buying back their own stock is a sure thing than making a risky investment in a startup. So that investment level began to decline, and as it declined and other private equity players emerged, other entities uh, came to fruition. They're now becoming you know, sufficiently of skill that they're beginning to challenge the, uh, the big three in terms of their ability to maintain their traditional market dominance. And I think you know, Latera is a good example of a company that's well into the nine figures of revenue just got recapped uh, by HG, so has a whole new war chest of funding to go forth and continue to expand. And they're beginning to threaten some of the core value propositions of the big three, thinking about transaction workflow, litigation workflow. So I think this subtle shift of power to well-funded private equity companies that are gaining mass, it's slowly overtaking the industry. And I don't think that you know, the traditional dominance in information by uh, Kluwer, uh, Reed Elsevier, Thompson is threatened. But what I do think is that 
the workflow component and the software component of workflow um, is becoming more democratized across the industry. And that certainly has some implications for competition and for how the industry will evolve in the future. What are you looking for in a legal tech company? What are some attributes that you like them to have other than profitability (laughs) or a good idea? (laughs) Having spent a little bit of time with uh, Bridge and thinking about this, I'll tell you that for every company that we invest in, we do a scorecard. And our scorecard has 16 areas that we evaluate in looking at a company. And it's there, there may be some surprising stuff on there um, at both ends of the spectrum. The, the number one thing on the scorecard is the management team. The management team is more important than any number. Um, we have to trust the management team. We have to like the management team. We have to believe that they have a grasp of the business and that they have the appropriate vision for the future. And if the management team fails to uh, communicate those things, then we're likely not to invest, even if the financials are great early in. On the other hand, you know, a lot of people that invest in um, uh, legal tech, they're looking at things like downside risk or, you know, what's the sales cycle or, you know, even potentially the valuation of the company. I think that at the end of the day, sure, if you get the valuation wrong, you're going to make 10% less money than you would have. But unless it's just a really horrible deal, you know, we're willing to, uh, you know, make a bet that if the bet wins, it's going to win. And a minor difference in valuation isn't going to happen. So, you know, if there are any entrepreneurs out there listening to this discussion, you know, what I really focus on is don't try to drive a hard bargain. Try to drive the quality of yourself and the business in working with venture capital partners And also, you have to like the venture capital partner, too, that they're going to add value and uh, not just be dumb money that's going to be asking for P&Ls occasionally and driving for results, because that, too, can also be detrimental to the business over the long term. And we really want to find someone we can partner with. We just had a Nicole Clark. She's co-founder at Trellis, uh, which is state court analytics software. She's been down the VC route, and uh, she brought that up that uh, you're going to be working with these VCs, and they need to add more than money. Like, they can bring contacts. They can bring knowledge that you don't have. Like, for instance, in her case, uh, it gave her access to people that knew tech when she didn't have that background because she was a lawyer. So that's a good point. I think it's sometimes overlooked that VCs are more than money. Yeah. No, and I think um, I'll give you a couple of uh, potential examples. Um, Bridge is um, invested in a company called Priori. It's doing quite well. And um, Priori needed some assistance in rebuilding its financial modeling and forecasting capability. And so Bridge just jumped in and did it on the company's behalf and built a very large model that tracks all the metrics that helps them keep a pulse on the business, is a much better forecasting tool now. And as Priori goes out in the future and raises money, All of the questions that VC firms will be asking will be easily answered without a lot of work of the management team. So um, that's one example from the bridge side. And I think on the legal tech fund side, if you consider that uh, many of their investors are law firms, uh, those law firms act in two components. One is to help vet opportunities from a customer's perspective, but then also assuming that the good investments are in high quality products to be the first sales channel and the sales champion for those products among lawyers. And so it's a win-win for everybody to be able to 
be with a firm that can provide whatever assistance it is, but not just to be dumb money. And I think that's the kind of mistake that uh, many startups, legal tech or not, sometimes make is they'll take the high offer because it's the high offer. But at the end of the day, I think getting advice and support and expertise is worth far more than the 5 or 10% valuation differentiation that may exist from the dumb money that's out there. Do you think legal tech companies need to have different qualities or different attributes than, say, other type of tech companies, a fintech or you know, government tech or whatever, what have you? Well, one clear differentiator I think is very different for those legal tech companies that are selling into law firms. Law firms are their own unique beast to sell into. They are not hierarchical. They operate on a partnership basis, so they often don't have traditional budgets in the way that a corporation would have. Decision-making is distributed. And so one of the key success factors in a fund that's selling into law firms is to be able to understand the decision-making process within the law firm, find an internal champion, and facilitate the sales process through that internal champion. I, I think that's probably true to a certain degree in other industries, but certainly in service industries like um, law firms, that becomes so critical that that sales process requires special attention, I think. And that's a, that's a clear, unique capability that's required. So you were on Ari uh, Kaplan's lunch. Uh, it was a video that I saw, but you said something that, in there that I wanted to talk to you about. You're talking about lawyers of the future being maybe not lawyers like we know them today, but technologists, and maybe even advising on client systems. Could, will you expand on that and where, where you're coming from there? If you think about what's happening, there are three macro trends impacting legal tech. One is you have kind of this unprecedented collision and union between law and technology, and it's happening in all kinds of places. It's happening as artificial intelligence begins to make more educated decisions and also begins to facilitate low-end legal work that is so routinized that it is an underutilization of the capabilities and talents of a lawyer. The second big trend is you have a lawyer who has traditionally been viewed as a problem solver, but I think that view is now changing to a lawyer as a problem preventer. And can they get into the workflow of their client earlier to keep issues from happening rather than coming in as the hired gun who resolves issues after they've happened? And the, the whole area of compliance is a good example of a lawyer who can do that. And then I think the third trend is lawyers who are facile with technology. So as compliance is a technology-enabled and technology-focused area, the best lawyers are going to be those who have an understanding of the software and the workflow and the um, ability to dive in with their clients on how to create systems and processes and technologies to help that. So a lawyer today is going to find themselves transitioning from a lawyer who is supported by technology to the lawyer as technologist. And uh, if they can do that, they can advise on systems and tech ahead of problems. They can advise on the solutions to manage problems. And then if all of that fails, then you litigate. But if you're successful, you've saved the company a ton of money in advance and you've differentiated yourself from your, your peer lawyers. And then I think you know, probably 
the last thing in that string is that law firms are becoming more tech embracing over time. And, you know, law firms have been, we started out this conversation, Chad, by talking about how law firms were slow technology adopters. And I think in the comparison of 10 years ago, the observation would have been that law firms are probably five years behind the rest of the industry in terms of technology adoption, just because of conservatism and lack of knowledge. And now they're almost there. They're almost even with the rest of the industry. Still probably a little bit of a gap, but getting there. But leadership and culture within law firms are becoming more tech embracing and more change accepting. And so as you think about the change that's happening, there's a different pace in the speed of tech than there is in the change in laws. And uh, that challenge will continue to exist. So the lawyers, technologists, will not only be able to solve client problems, but they'll be able to facilitate the internal change within law firms that's required to keep them even with the rest of the market. Mike, it's been great. A lot of good insight. People want to learn more about you. Where do they find you? Best way to reach me is uh, Mike at JoplinConsulting.com. Well, that's it for another edition of Technically Legal. We appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can check us out on most major podcast platforms. If you want to get a hold of me, you can email me at cmain at precipient.co or catch me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Stay safe out there. And until next time, this has been Technically Legal.